Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more Hemisync podcasts, such as Episode 8 with Dean Radin, podcasts that aren't necessarily associated with any particular Hemisync product, but simply feature fascinating guests and subjects associated with the frontiers of consciousness research and understanding, please consider joining our exclusive Patreon page and get some great discounts on Hemisync products in the bargain. Thanks for watching. Hey, thanks for joining us for the Hemisync Podcast. I'm pleased to be speaking today to Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche. Lama Tenzin is a Tibetan master in the Burn tradition, a Dzogchen teacher. He is the founder of the Ligmin Cha School and is also the author of several books, including Wonders of the Natural Mind and the Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. This is his third Hemisync album with us, uh, following up on uh, Healing Through Awareness and Sacred Space. Um, we are Pleased to be joined by Lama Tenzin today. Please welcome him. Lama Tenzin, thanks for joining us. Um, for people that are not familiar with you, you are a Dzogchen teacher in the Bon tradition. And I did not realize this until reading your books, but the Bon tradition, even though it comes from Tibet, it is not Buddhist, meaning it did not derive from Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, from Shakyamuni Buddha who was the Indian prince Siddhartha Gautama. It is actually much more ancient. Um, yes, absolutely. And I'm, I'm always intrigued by things that are ancient. Um, and so I guess you trace your lineage back to Central Asia some 17,000 years ago, which is an incredibly long period of time, um, predating the last ice age even. And so I'm wondering if you can just kind of start by telling us a bit about your lineage, your teaching, and how it has been passed down over these centuries, maybe just kind of hearing this from your masters. Yeah, so generally speaking that, you know, when something is so old, it's really difficult to say precisely what really happened, mm -hmm. what is really truly what happened or not. But when something is very old, there's always oral traditions, oral histories. And so according to these teachings, it says it's over 17,000 years old. And uh, the founder was called Lord Tambashira Nuboche uh, and from Persia, Central Asia, and coming to many different countries in the end, it ended up in Tibet. So the Tibetan civilization, Tibetan cultural heritage, all comes from this source. But Buddhism was, from Shakyamuni, Buddhism was introduced in Tibet late 7th century, 8th century. So then afterward, the Bern tradition, the indigenous tradition, Bern tradition, and then the, the Buddhism from India kind of merged and more integrated together. So it's kind of impacted both ways. Gotcha. And so I guess in the eighth century, there was some overlap with the great Dzogchen master Padmasambhava, who is associated with the uh, Ning uh, Ma Pa tradition, if I'm, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And yes, so absolutely. You did correct. Okay. So, and so, so in the eighth century, uh, the great master Padmasambhava, who's uh, primarily in the Nyingma tradition, but also there's a connection in the Bion tradition. So 
So, uh, so that time, these teachings were practiced. These Dokchen teachings were practiced. Dokchen teachings were transmitted. And then uh, gradually, the lineage became many different, went different branches of lineages, uh, both in the Nyingma school and the Ben school, the tradition of Dokchen. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then can you tell us a bit about your early life, your parents, and kind of how you came into this teaching? Yeah, so I, you know, first of all, I was born into the family, so it was not that difficult to go around and look for one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, but then also I, I was recognized by my, uh, my teacher as a reincarnation uh, uh, Lama, a previous Lama. So, so these two things kind of became important part of my journey. And uh, since age, around age 11, I began to, you know, dedicate my life, all my life uh, through my teachers, uh, practicing and learning and growing up in that environment. So it's a long, beautiful journey. Uh-huh. And, and, and right, so at the age of 11, you were initiated into a particularly esoteric um, body of teaching, right? Yeah. Yes. And, I guess I'm intrigued by the importance um, that dreams play in this particular um, body of teaching. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that actually played a role in? Yeah, of, so uh, the you teaching, uh, you know, around that age, you know, when I even first went to my teacher uh, with a small group of older monks, I was only like 11, 12 years old, maybe not more than 13. And then uh, my old, my other students were over 50, 60 years old. So I was a little kid there. Mm -hmm. But when we went to my teacher, he first thing he said, before I accept you, all of you as my student to receive this cycle of teaching, you need to go sleep and come up with your dreams. And if when I see your dream, and then I will say, I will like, say yes or no. So we all have to come up with our dreams. So then we next day, we went with our dreams. And then, of course, he did not send out anybody, but he did make someone up, some people do quite a bit of practices and purifications and kind of uh, before he accepted. Yeah, so dream has been very important part. Uh -huh. And can you tell us about your particular dream? I, I thought this was fascinating. You were a bus driver, right? Yes. Uh, in my yeah. dream, uh, I was, uh, no, my friend of mine was bus driver. Okay. And, uh, bus was, this little bus was uh, driving around the same teacher's house, which in reality, there's no road there. So, but bus was circumambulating in, in, around his house and the people are, are coming in and riding the bus and, and uh, and I was a conductor, so I was giving them the ticket. And uh -huh. in the ticket, there is a, uh, when I open the ticket, there is a syllable ah, the uh -huh. Tibetan alphabet ah, which is kind of symbolizes the primordial wisdom. Mm -hmm. So ah was there. So I was at, th at that age, I did not know much about you know uh, Tibetan syllables, what they represent, what mm -hmm. deeper meanings of them, nothing. But I think. My teacher was quite usually a wrathful teacher. So when <laughs> you have interesting, nice dreams, he would not, you know, compliment or anything. He says, okay, that's fine. Just right. shut up, you know. <laughs> right. You so the uh, Tibetan symbol, 
Yeah, so the Tibetan symbol ah is especially central to your teaching. Um, yeah. You guys use it as an object of meditation. And the image of you being the bus conductor is evocative of, of someone who's going to be a teacher or is going to lead people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so after very... many years, after many years, maybe 20, over 20 years, I never thought very much about the dream. When one time I was in Italy doing a little retreat, and when I, then I was passing them ah, because mm. we have to do as an object of focus. So when I was passing, and that very moment, and I remember, wow, okay, now I know what that dreamt meant. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, and then you came to the West in your early 20s, correct? Yes, I was around 28, I think. Uh -huh. And so you came to study religion, but you found yourself attracted to the scientific method. Um, and can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so basically I, I always... Uh, interested to learn more and learn other culture, other tradition, other disciplines. And so I was interested in Native Americans. I was interested in psychology, science. And so, you know, I got exposed also by in different university. I got a scholarship in Oslo University. I got a Rockefeller Fellowship, Rice University. I was very fortunate to get all this access to the university and um, to learn more, yes. Mm -hmm. And so what were your early impressions of Western students? Well, um, early impression was Western student as far as their, their studying Dharma is concerned. I, I thought they were not that serious, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, were, yes. they were like a, a, shop, a shop, uh, shopping around. It's like a yes. shopping Dharma. Yes, uh, spiritual so, tourists. Spiritual tourism. Tourists yes. Also, uh, when words like a sampler, can yes. you come in and give us a talk? Sampler talk was the most strange thing I have ever heard. Say yes. sampler talk. talk, talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, you know, people that are listening to this have to understand um, kind of your background and the seriousness of your practice. So when you were, I think, in your early teens, maybe you spent something like six weeks in a dark retreat, right? Yes, Where you uh, literally sat in a dark room for six weeks. Yes, so, uh, yeah, probably I was around teenage. Uh, uh -huh. Teenage, maybe around 15, 16 or something like that. So one of our training, when receiving teaching from my master, and uh, there's a particular type of practice called dark retreat, where you totally go into the dark room and... Um, no light at all, and uh, remain silence and remain meditating there for for 50 days. So, and uh, so that's what I did. You know, so it was not necessarily easy practice to do, mm -hmm. and especially that age. You know, trying to be still in one place. Yes. And, uh, but the one one of the most beautiful experiences that I ever had. My mom used to tell my sisters, if you don't uh, behave well, we'll put you in a dark room also. Because after <laughs> he went into the dark room, it's much more calm and peaceful. Yes. You know? Yes. And so you detail some of um, the visions you had or some of the experiences you had in your books, uh, Wonders of the Natural Mind and uh, the Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep. But some of these experiences sound 
like what we in the West would describe as psychedelic experiences, you know, things that you have to take drugs to induce. Um, how, how would you, um, how would you respond to that? Are there any experiences that you think uh, would be interesting for, for, for people to hear about? Um, well, well I think um, in the West, uh, uh, people using substance to have some deeper experiences. And so some of these deeper experiences of vision might affect some of inner transformations. So not necessarily everything is bad or not good. Uh, people have different ways of journeying. But in our own tradition, we don't use substance, but we do have experiences of visionary experiences. Like, um, so basically some sense of deep uh, wounds or deep patterns or deep karmic traces. Uh, these uh, deeper experiences need to be surfaced out mm -hmm. and processed and clear yeah. and transcendent. So I think that's yeah. kind of the purpose of it. And that definitely happens during these meditations. Yes. So how did these transform your personality? Because you've commented on that. So, so basically, these uh, experiences, I think what happened is it cleared something more deeper issues. Mm -hmm. uh, it connects with yourself and it connects with your potentiality. And it's, it's a very uh, important way of uh, self-development in our tradition. Mm -hmm. And so getting into the teachings themselves, um, so there's an outer cycle, which are the sutras, and many people that are listening to this are probably familiar with that term. Um, there's an inner cycle, which is tantra. People are probably also familiar with that. And then there's also the secret cycle, which is Dzogchen. Um, can you talk a bit about that? So basically, these three uh, paths, uh, approaches, or disciplines are uh, all are equally valid, valuable, uh, but depends on uh, who is practicing. For example, the metaphor is if there is a plant poison for ordinary people who have no knowledge of transformation, they should avoid the poison. Mm -hmm. So it's like a sutra is a poison, renunciation, part of renunciation, renouncing mm -hmm. it. Or people like a her herbologist, like doctors, they know how to use the poison to turn into a medicine. There is a knowledge there. With that knowledge, one is able to transform one's inner poison into uh, support and into a medicine, into a personal development. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, the path of liberation, is like a Dzogchen path, which is saying you really don't need to run away, you don't need to change anything. If you understand the truth and leave it as it is, it will transform by itself. Mm -hmm. And so these are different paths of transformation, really, and different tools available yeah. to so accomplish that. so it's like a that. peacock. Peacock yes. will eat the poison, and peacock will not die, but it will help peacock. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of what the practitioner is actually doing, um, early on in the path, you um, advocate a um, practice of focused concentration, correct? And then later on, this becomes 
conceptless or focusless contemplation. Can you talk a bit about how that works? Yeah, so so basically it's like anything, like when you're learning and driving, first, first you cannot, you, you get really agitated, nervous, and you cannot do multiple tasks. You don't want to talk, you don't want to play music, you don't want to even change the gears, you know, you want to focus. So then gradually you, you master in it, and then you begin to integrate, drink coffee, look at the map, talk, listen to music, <laughs> do a makeup, makeup Text. Yeah. live a whole <laughs> life in your car. Yeah. The full integration of driving. So yeah. same way, you know, first in uh, when you are practicing is in the beginning, uh, it requires a very uh, uh, undivided attention, focus, mm-hmm. single pointed focus, and then people able to sit for hours like that. And then, then slowly you begin to realize that uh, you don't have to focus that much, but some, some sense of stability, awareness of stability, it's there even in the movement. Mm-hmm. And so I guess to kind of um, put a different uh, cast on it, the, the early path, the path of concentration is one based in duality, whereas the latter path of contemplation of non-focus is one of non-duality, where you kind of merge with the experience of whatever it is that is occurring. Is that yes. accurate? Okay. Yes, yes. And so in terms of the um, states of consciousness that the practitioner is working towards, um, you talk about the experiences of Kunji and Rigpa. Can you please tell us a bit about that? So basically, Kunji, Kunji and Rigpa is two things. Kunji it means, literally means the base of all. Uh, Sometimes, uh, nowadays, I refer as a source, you know, like a, mm-hmm. a source of everything. And it's a space. And uh, Rigpa is, mean, literally means the innate awareness uh, or awareness. When you are aware of your source, true source, then you know your richness, your potentiality, the infinite possibility, limitless uh, experiences. Uh, so this is uh, the approach here. So basically, um, just to have experiences of Kunji, Kunji is there, but you need to mm-hmm. know, you need to be aware of them. That's where the big part comes. Mm-hmm. And so when you're having um, a transformative experience, what some might describe as a psychedelic experience, that is um, purifying, burning up the karmic traces, transforming your personality, how, how did those relate to Kunji and Rigpa? Yeah, again, same way, in the Kunji and the Rigpa is uh, the best way to transform them is to be open, allowing these experiences to arise and not interfering the process of their arising and not grasping on to them so they, they can liberate by themselves. Mm-hmm. So experiences, every experiences have their own power to come in the universe, in your consciousness, manifest there and liberate, transcend by itself without anybody's help mm-hmm. if you are open and aware. But mm-hmm. most of the time, these experiences are grasped mm-hmm. on and manipulated. And mm-hmm. then they don't liberate. They produce sufferings. Mm-hmm. And so we aren't grasping for these experiences. We aren't avoiding them. We're kind of allowing them to happen, almost kind of like a surrender. Is it a state of surrender? 
Yes, in some sense of, uh, well, I mean, you know, like uh, with your experiences, it's more like surrendering mm -hmm. uh, and uh, trusting rather than manipulating, interfering, yes. Mm -hmm. Understood. And so what we're talking about here is really direct experience, which is the essence of Chen, correct? Yes, yes. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we can get into when we have this type of experience is, ah, this is emptiness. And as soon as the mind does that, it's not really the thing itself, is it? It's, it's something yeah, else. The moment, the moment you conceptualize, the yeah. moment you label, then you lost the truth. Yes. And so it, it sort of needs, the experience needs to remain non-conceptual. Yeah, experience need to remain non-conceptual, or if the concept conceptual mind is there, it should not not impact the experiences. It need to do ex outer experience should uh, arise and mm -hmm. let go, or inner conceptual mind can arise and let go, but not grasp each other or interfere with each other. Right, and so. You're talking about um, how the conceptual mind kind of naturally pushes us into tension. And what we're really talking about is a relaxed state, which you refer yes. to as the natural state. Yeah. So the most important thing is that many, many times all our suffering, our pains, our conflict, they, they, are, they come out of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. They come out of effort. The exhaustion and effort is the two main thing what is causing sufferings to this world. And these exhaustion and effort is caused by pain identity that everybody trying to be someone. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I refer as a pain identity and yeah. causing a lot of effort. So in order to overcome or transcend the suffering and confusion is to rest, rest deep. And uh, resting is the way of liberating these exhaustion, right. and conflict, and pain. Right. And so when we use hemisync, we have various states of consciousness. Um, one of them that is kind of like the base state is a mind-awake, body-asleep state. Um, does that resonate with you? Does that sound familiar? Or Yeah. So I think, yeah. I think in some sense of... Uh, you know, with the heavy thing, it's kind of supports to bring similar state of mm -hmm. resting. And uh, when one is able to rest deep, and definitely there is a lot of process are happening within oneself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that um, I found helpful in working with people over the years is actually pointing out some of these states of consciousness. Because the experiencer might not understand what it is that he or she is experiencing um, as they're having the experience. But if you point it out to them after the fact, then they say, oh, and, you know, it's a conceptual understanding that they're having. But that conceptual understanding can have some value because the next time they go into that state, they're able to hold it more easily and recognize it and perhaps allow it from a non-conceptual uh, sure. frame of mind. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when... In the beginning, when when most of the ways of uh, our perception, our understanding, our learning depend on a conceptual mind, so uh, conceptual learning has place. It helps, but as long as one know how to use it well, 
not get caught up in mm -hmm. it totally. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm curious, while I've got you uh, live and online, um, I, I wanted to get your impressions of, and, and you know, how, how you kind of reconcile the various teachings that are out there. So let's say we have the, the traditional Buddhist view, which is that emptiness is the absolute, more or less. Um, and then, say, in Dzogchen, you're talking more about a non-dual presence as kind of the absolute. Um, it, how do you sort of um, marry those two things or reconcile those two things? Are, yeah, are they different? I don't think uh, we need to, to marry them yeah. uh, or reconcile. I think they don't have any conflict uh, between mm -hmm. two. It's just the approach of people, practitioners, able mm -hmm. to understand uh, one way one feels more familiar. It's easier to understand one way than the other way. So I don't think uh, one should really limit oneself uh, mm -hmm. which which way might be easier for me to understand? I think mm -hmm. that um, truth is same. Mm -hmm. And so, and, um, uh, and the truth is same. And ultimately, understanding the truth is also same. But try, a, approach of understanding the truth might be different. Mm -hmm. And then, what do you think about kind of the Western notion of, um, well, the contents of my consciousness, you know, my personal history? That's important. Yes, that's a, that that is important for for the pain identity, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for pain identity, how important you make of pain identity in the West. Pain identity, individual individual is very important. Individualist, very individualistic sense, mm -hmm. and uh, pain identity. Everybody, I, me, mine, and that perception of self, even though it never throughout the history, it never stayed the same, but nevertheless, we always think each era, we think self is very important. We don't know what that means. Uh, Self-liberation is important. Pursuit of happiness of self is very important. The self is very important all the way, but we don't know what, who that self is. It seems changing all the time. And uh -huh. getting more confusion about the, what that self is. So I think, right. in some sense, is it's important. But but at the same time, if somebody is able to break through through it, it's not important. Right. And so, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. But um, the self, when we talk about for example, the for example, yeah. if, if you if you have a friend who is suffering, who is confused. And who's telling you the story about why I'm suffering, why I'm confused, mm. history, stories. Of course, you cannot say this person, come on, forget about all the, what you're saying is meaningless nonsense. Yeah. You know, you cannot say that because that's what this person is experiencing. It. It's a yeah. true experience, it's true feeling. Saying something, ignoring it will not be nice, nice way, nice, nice friend. No. But and at the same time, you also can feel, oh my God, this person is really making up so much stuff. Yeah, absolutely necess not necessary to make up. And many, mm. how many, how often we feel that way with some friends? Yeah, but, a lot. But at the yes. same time, it happened to us. We will tell yes. a story to somebody else, our important story. 
somebody else will be feeling the same. Imagine you tell your story to the Buddha, Buddha is thinking, oh my God, this guy is crazy. Yes. So the, the, the truth is, it is crazy. Mm-hmm. But crazy does not mean, is not meaningless, is not value. Yes. Craziness has to be realized. And the yes. moment you realize there's no story, there's no story. You have right. created all the stories. Yes. So in your particular example, the friend is focused on a particular point of pain and more or less taking that to comprise his entire self. His self, his existence, his consciousness is suffused with pain. That's all he thinks he is. Sure. And so this is kind of the self with a small letter S, right? Yeah, yes. As opposed to the self with yeah, a capital letter S. Absolutely. With the self that is connected to Kunji or that yes. is able to experience Rigpa. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we touched upon this earlier um, about how the Western world treats practice. Um, it's a bit more casual than you might treat practice in, say, Tibet. But what is the importance of practice? Well, important in the end of the day, everything depends on the practice, you know, like uh, uh, practice of listening, practice of reflecting on, practice on uh, understanding, practice on practicing, practice uh, practices of experience, practices of becoming familiar with what you realize, uh, practices of fully manifesting what you realize. So there are so many different layers and levels of practices. And if, if one, one does not commit to these, nothing is going to happen. So mm-hmm. practice is, in the end, it's important. No matter how much you know, if there is no practice, nothing is going to change. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the central um, benefit from practice, it, it, can, it can give us a sense of meaning. Um, without that, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to go chase the next sweet thing, the next pleasure. Um, any, any thought on that? Yeah, and yeah, the meaning, the purposes uh, from the point of view of the teaching is liberation. Mm-hmm. It's not the next pleasure, the one who freeing from the one who needs the next pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so you really emphasize the importance of integrating practice into daily life, which I appreciate. Uh, so the burn tradition is really kind of a psycho-spiritual practice. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, and you know, again, you know, if you we talk about importance of the practice, but when we think about practice, when people think, okay, I practice half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the mo- evening, or I practice one hour or two mm. hour, all the formal practice, it's not not enough. Mm-hmm. The most important part of the practice is informal practice, living practice. Mm-hmm. Moment to moment, when you are faith, when you're angry, you practice anger, mm-hmm. trans- transcending anger into love. When you are depressed, you practice depression. Yes. When you are lost, you practice losing yourself is the door to finding yourself. So yes. every every negative experiences becomes your practice to the door of your development. Yes. And kind of um, expanding on that, so we spend a third of our life sleeping, right? Yes. So if this can be time that is used for practice, that could be tremendously beneficial. Um, and that is kind of what this, what this new exercise that we're doing with you is about. Um, can you talk to us a bit about kind of the background for this exercise and 
your hopes for it? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, generally, lately, I've been feeling like our modern lifestyle, really, people with the, so much time on the screen. Yeah. And uh, people, a lot of lights, street lights, and the light, in the light, battery charging lights, fridge light, TV lights. So, um, so many, so much light, outer mm -hmm. uh, electric lights, and mm -hmm. um, interfering with the natural flow or resting of our body yeah. system and uh, connection to the dark, dark night and connection to the deep sleep and mm -hmm. so these are very much interfere and you can see so much problem of sleep deprivation mm -hmm. and people are making in high in a political level making many wrong decisions based on lack of exhaustion not mm -hmm. not enough rest yeah people are not able to learn properly because they're not getting enough rest yeah, people are not making wrong decision or of not feeling good, not because it's not enough rest and sleep. So mm -hmm. I think, in some sense, resting and sleeping is also that we can really work on it, and mm -hmm. I encourage everybody to work on it so that naturally you will able to have more healing in mm -hmm. your body. Naturally, you will able to have more healing in your emotions in your, with your deep uh, hidden wounds and your ability to manifest out in the world to make decisions and feel inspired energized they all comes from deep rest mm -hmm. so part of this is learning how to rest deeply um, but then how do we also turn sleep into a practice of sorts how do we cultivate awareness during the sleep and dream state yeah, so first of all, I think uh, really it's important to rest because many people are trying to do something because mm -hmm. we, we are, our problem is doing things. Yeah. And even before we go to sleep, many people have problems sleeping uh, because they want, they're doing to sleep. Instead of mm -hmm. resting and sleeping, they plan yeah. to sleep. They plan to, they put effort to sleep. They have yeah. made, decided to sleep. They have all this planning mood, mm -hmm. doing mood. And, uh, and that's why they're not sleeping in the first place. That's why they're not resting in the first place. They yeah. have to forget about everything. Yeah. They have to forget about themselves. Yes. So, so, um, so the meditation is helping to, in a sense, forgetting your pain, pain mm -hmm. identity uh, uh, and loosening up your effort and mm -hmm. uh, redirecting your focus in terms of getting... Um, Focusing on things you haven't done that day unconsciously, mm -hmm. focusing on this beautiful space mm -hmm. of night or sleep, sacred sleep. Mm -hmm. So going deeply into that space, resting yes, deep. Absolutely. Um, so um, I'll sh I'll share a personal anecdote here. So um, I was um, really enthralled with your book, The Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep and undertook some of the practices. So there are kind of four practices you do during the night. Um, and the first is, again, visualizing the Tibetan letter A, um, kind of in your chest, I believe, on like a lotus flower. And so what I found in doing these practices, similar to other lucid dreaming practices I've done in the past, is that it um, creates a very light sleep state as opposed to a deep sleep state. And I found that over time, I missed sleeping deeply 
<laughs> I like the experience of falling asleep and experiencing the annihilation of sleep, um, which um, doesn't seem to uh, marry well with a practice of um, you know lucid dreaming or dream yoga. It, do you have any thoughts on that, or am I doing something wrong? <laughs> no, I think uh, for people uh, generally, uh, well, I mean, for example, idea will be definition of rest. For, let's think about an awakened state. You can yeah. say, well, for me, resting is to go to the beach and lie down. Yeah. And so, so people, there are people who only know how to rest is go to the beach and lie down. Mm -hmm. Or people are, people. there are also people who can rest uh, painting from their heart, mm -hmm. singing from their soul, or, or, or uh, learning to express. They can rest through their expressions yeah. deep enough because rest means touching to the core. And mm -hmm. these expressions are coming from the core. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you said, denial means also that another way is you, you have, since you have not connected to the core, but at least you forgot your pain identity, that's mm. you are calling a rest. Mm. So I think uh, in some sense, and I'm not saying that uh, in from the Dzogchen point of view, it's bad. I'm saying it's not good enough, mm -hmm. uh, but it's good enough for people who need that, and, but that's mm -hmm. because that's only access they have. Mm -hmm. But they are they are deeper access to the core. So, if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying it's possible to rest deeply in a light sleep state by accessing the core. Yeah, absolutely. The state of kunji. So what I'm saying here is, be, being aware or being have lucid dream or activity of lucid dream will yeah. not interfere. Does not have to interfere your deep state of rest. With deep state of rest. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, Lama Tenzin, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thanks for producing Sacred Sleep with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.